All right. Welcome to another episode of Connecting to Pack. Uh, this is your host, Abdullah Najjar, and today I'm joined by Miroslava Colin. Colin? That's is correct. That? <laughs> okay. So Miroslava is a student from Venezuela. Um, she's currently pursuing uh, an MA in International Studies, and uh, today we'll, we'll talk uh, about a little bit about her background, the decision that she made to, to move into the United States and pursue grad school, and so some of the lessons learned and experiences uh, that she, um, some of her experiences here in the U.S. and, and in Venezuela. So, um, Miroslava, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much, Bella. Hi, everyone. It's good to be here. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, Miroslava, there's there's a lot that I'd love to talk to you uh, there's a lot that I'd love to talk to you about today. And um, first off, I'd be interested to know about why, you know, why you chose to pursue grad school in the United States. What motivated you to do that? Um, since I was a little kid, I've always wanted to study abroad. And I've always wanted to study in the United States. Um, my dad spent a season here. So we used to watch a lot of American movies, and I has always been interested in academia since I was a child. I think my mom used to tell me, like, I used to go around the house with colors and with a sheet of paper, and she was, and I wanted to go to school because my cousins used to go to school. <laughs> so she tells me that I've been a nerd my, my entire life. Oh, my. So definitely, um, I think that that's, like, the main reason why. I've always been interested in, like, studying abroad. I wanted to do it on my undergrad, but it wasn't possible for us. Um, so I pursue my, my undergrad in Venezuela, and then... For my grad school, I had that goal in mind, and I was like, okay, I want to pursue this goal. I want to pursue this goal. I worked after graduation for two or three years in Venezuela, mm -hmm. two years and in Venezuela and Colombia, and then I won this Fulbright scholarship, and wow. I was selected for the Fulbright scholarship, and then I... Wow. So <clears throat> let, let me try to um, pick up on a couple of things you just mentioned. You said that you were not... Uh, you weren't capable of going to the U.S. Uh, for for undergrad. Yes. Okay. Um. What were what would you attribute that to, uh, being capable to make it here to the states? Well, I finished high school in 2014, and Venezuela wasn't in a really good place back then. It's not in a really good place either right now. <laughs> okay. Um. Also, I was young and I wasn't like ready to move by myself, so I didn't like look for it. But it was still in my mind. Also, um, I was selected in the best university of Venezuela to pursue my undergrad. So oh, I wow. was like, okay, then I'm going to do it. I wanted to be a lawyer. But then I was uh, selected by the, the National University of Venezuela. It's named Universidad Central de Venezuela. Okay. So it, it was like, okay, I'm going to pursue political sciences since that was already my passion. It's just that my mom was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be just like my mom, but then, but I've been involved into politics since a young age. So I was like, okay, let's do it. Wow, you've been involved in politics since a young age. Uh, were you also involved during your undergrad years? Undergrad, yes, and after graduation as well. And how did that look like? What sort of, how would you describe that experience, the involvement in politics? It was dangerous. 
dangerous. <laughs> I think that's the way I could describe it. <laughs> okay. Um, it was interesting. I learned a lot. Without it, I wouldn't be the professional or the student or the person I am today. Uh-huh. However, I know I knew back then that it was dangerous. I didn't know to what scale. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but definitely being involved into politics goes beyond just being the face of the politician or um, just being in front of the camera. It also, in Venezuela, we have a student movement. Uh-huh. It's a university student movement that it's all across the country and it is um, all across the, each university, whether they are private, public, autonomous or not, because we have a different um, university system. Yeah. Um, and usually, historically, um, students has been pretty prominent and has been an interest and pressure actor and stakeholder in mm-hmm. the country. So if you, politicians usually use students who are involved in politics for pursuing their goals or interests. Hmm. It's been historically that way, but also students push for their own interests. Um, for example, in 2007 in Venezuela, there was a um, they shut down a national TV uh, channel that has been, that was there for more than 50 years, 30 50 years. years. Well, yeah, so it was historically um, a common scene and watch uh, channel in every Venezuelan home. Mm-hmm. It was named Radio Caracas Televisión. Wait, wait, wait. Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> so it was Slowly. Caracas Radio TV, if we could. If we could, if we could say, yeah, it speaks Spanish pretty fast. Yeah, um, sometimes it's hard to <laughs> keep up on. I mean, I don't understand the language, yeah. but, you know, sorry, go ahead. You so were. Radio Caracas Televisión was, um, so Radio Caracas TV was mm-hmm. um, a traditional TV, ch- TV channel, and they wanted to shut it down. Yeah. And the student movement, uh, went out and protest against it. Uh, and afterwards, after that, that was like the biggest punch and turn down of freedom of expression mm. and freedom of speech. And afterwards, then everything just came, just fell apart. Oh, gosh. Like all freedoms just fell apart after that. After 2007. So, after 2007. So it was progressively going, like falling apart. But then when I got into university in 2014, because I'm not that old, I didn't go to, <laughs> I wasn't part of that movement. Yeah. Um, in 2014, um, the economic crisis hit. Right. Um, with an oil country, like in an oil country, mm-hmm. oil producer country, which wasn't, um, wasn't coherent, if we could say that. Okay. And in 2014, um, there were lines for getting basic supplies, basic food in the, in the supermarkets. It didn't matter how much money you had. You had to be online for six, seven, four hours to get um, corn flour, which is a basic um, ingredient for the arepa, which is our sandwich, if we could say that. The arepa. Yeah, the arepa. <laughs> so um, it was a, a really hard time. And this didn't improve until 2018, 2019. And during that time, we as students, we built up a 
student movement that was against the government. But we used to do protests. But since 2014 until 2019, when I graduated, none of our protests got off from the university because oh. the police was um, was just blocking us and was um, spreading pepper gas and and even shots in some cases like they like were, real shots whoa they used guns yeah live ammunition and many of us uh, were jailed many of us uh, just migrated oh many of us were persecuted um, and you didn't need to be like the face of the movement you could be like on the back like a strategizing that was more like my role um, even though I was part of the student movement, I was part of the student centers of, of the student government of my of my university and my school. But it was dangerous because the government was just prosecuting you. So this is very risky for, you know, a college student who just started their, you know, they just want to start a future. They want to build a future. They want to figure things out. But being involved in such activities at a younger, at a young age, must be—I mean, it's dangerous. And I'm sure your your parents might have felt that it was risky as well, right? What was? Yeah. <laughs> well, how did you deal with that? What well, was, I'm what an was only like? child. Okay. I'm an only child, so that didn't make it like any better. But I'm an only child, and once the real time when I was truly, truly involved when I was out protestant and i even um i was even followed by the police and the police came to my house and everything was in 2000 from 2017 until 2019 Uh, and then after 2020 but we can talk about that later because that's after college (laughs) um but in that um, back then i was my parents were pretty worried and concerned about my safety yeah and I even remember staying at a friend's house because I didn't want to go home because if I was followed home, then they could be in danger. However, um, they, however, they were pretty concerned, and sometimes we had we got into arguments because of that. I bet they knew that I was doing that because I had a larger vision, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, that I was truly committed with the cause. Yeah. turning well yeah we could say turning on the government <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could say that because we were in a position of the government and when you're in a position to a dictatorship they see you as the enemy wow however you have the the elements or not to turn it down we didn't have them but we were part of that pressure group that was bothering their comfort zone of oppressing everybody my goodness uh, and you said a lot of your friends or people from that opposition group were either imprisoned or captured. Um, <laughs> I hope no one got killed. <laughs> um, no, but God, no. okay, uh, but but how how did that make you feel that some a lot of the people that you were associated with were g- being captured and you know maybe being imprisoned? Did that weigh heavily on you, or how how did you deal with that? Well, that was. A hard time. I remember one of my closest friends. He was in jail. Oh. Um. The day he was in jail, I was home, 
he was out partisan and I was um, sending them the the data and the information about where was the police coming from or where was the National Guard coming from for them to just escape. Oh, my. However, they couldn't, and he wasn't jailed. He was there for 50 days, 50 and days. we used to go. We couldn't see him. Nobody could see him, just his mom, and just like twice in 50 days. Um, it was a hard process because we even hired lawyer, lawyers, but I mean, they weren't hired because they were pro bono. So they were from an NGO that was working with political prisoners. Oh. That's what he was, a political prisoner. Okay. Um, And we were, we once that happened, the movement automatically, well, the, our part, our cell of the movement was like, hold on, nobody's helping us. None of these politicians are doing anything to help us and we're not doing it for them but they are using us mm -hmm. so we were at that point we were like okay if they went after this friend that i'm talking about which i'm who i'm not gonna name you don't have to um we once he got into jail we were like they are coming after us and the only way they know where we're at it's because they have people who inform them who gives them information and who could be that oh only people who know who we are wow so we so like didn't, sleeping cells yeah it could be it could be <laughs> wow. but i mean those are just speculations that we had so back then when that happened we were like okay we get up even though that we are seeking for like something bigger just gotta calm down because if not we're not we're not gonna graduate because back then the university stopped op operations oh yeah we okay. weren't on class wait what what happened then why did they stop because it wasn't safe for anybody to be at the university because we were protesting and and the government was tearing us down oh so the professors which the, which happens a lot in venezuela when there are political problems the professors and the students go to something named paro pardo paro 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 so it's like someone it's like the entire university system or at least the public universities that we call autonomous in this case because yeah. publics are from the government and autonomous are free but they are not um owned by the government Yeah. They are owned by themselves. They have their own counselor and their own system. So kind of a private school. No, it's not private. Okay. Because it's 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 accessible because you don't pay for anything. Oh, okay. And it's public because anyone can get in. <laughs> it's just that they are autonomous because the government, even though they have to fund it by law, yeah. they can they cannot even get into the university. So, for example, we used to stay at the university the entire day because the police wasn't allowed to get into university because that was an autonomous zone oh. well where they by law couldn't get in <clears throat> huh. okay okay it's like an embassy <laughs> yeah something similar but yeah um, of course they sometimes uh, violated that um so what happens with the part is that the university system of autonomous universities just stop operations mm -hmm. like they stop they suspend classes and even though classes are suspended and students still come to university because oh. they protest. 
Okay. Or they build up strategy and, well, it's like a pressure system that we do. It's pretty cultural as well. Yeah. So that was what year again? 2019? That was 2017. Seven. Whoa. And what, <laughs> what, um, were you like a freshman, sophomore in college at that point? At that point, I was, I was a sophomore. Wow. And all of that just, like, did you ever imagine that that was how your college experience was going to look like? Just filled with so much, you know, uh, unexpectedness. I knew I was going to engage. I knew that I was going to advocate because it was on me. Like, it was my personality. Yeah. I couldn't just see things happen and not doing anything about it. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about the country. I'm talking about my school system as well. Like, I'm talking about my, um, how do you call it here? So, in here, you call it, like, your whole system. Like, the holes where you live. Yeah. But we call it faculties. Okay. Um, so, I cannot, uh, or the holes where you study at, or the schools where you study at. Like chess, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so in or colleges, we could call it colleges. So yeah. the college where I was studying, which was um, in Venezuela, it is law, like it is law college. Okay. So political sciences and law are in the same college. Right. So I couldn't stand that some stuff with the school system weren't working or the college system weren't working. So I got involved with that, and then everything turned out into one thing came to get got to another, and I got truly advocate and civically engaged, and I do wow. not regret. You don't regret any of that. Wow. I do not. Okay. Wow. That is, that's not the typical college experience of, say, someone here in the United States. <laughs> this is very unique, very special, and filled with so many. I'm sure good me- memories, some might not be very good, um, but it, uh, how do you, um, do, do, do people generally in, in Venezuela expect something similar from their college experience or was that merely something that might have been unique during the, the 2010s? Um, what um. would you say? The student movement as a political actor has always been there. Okay. However, getting involved into the student government, the student movement, it's not something that it's normal. I mean, the average college student doesn't get involved into that. They just go in Venezuela. Yeah, they just go to to their classes and they do other stuff like they play. I don't know, soccer or they. they get involved into model of United Nations debate, which I was involved <laughs> as well. Okay. Um, so it's it's something that, like going through all that, even though we wanted to make it like seem normal, mm-hmm. it wasn't normal. Yeah. But we were a committed group of. 21, 23s, 24s, wow. uh, people in their 20s. Um, in their early 20s, committed to a vision that we had about changing the system. Mm-hmm. However, it didn't happen, but it wasn't because of the movement itself. It was also because of the opposition elites. Oh, yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it's not like the the majority of the of the university population just gets involved. That's not the way it is. Yeah, just a small number of students. Yeah, and all across colleges, like it's not just like the law college or chess. No, uh-huh. it's, <laughs> it's all across the university. So each college has their like leaders mm. in each uh, one of their careers. Huh. Yeah. So so earlier you said that there was uh there was the phase that was post twenty twenty and there's the phase that preceded twenty twenty. How um well how different was that phase like twenty twenty and beyond? Because you were still involved in politics, right? And maybe an opposition group, but how would you describe that experience? How different was it? Okay, so getting into context, I got enrolled into university, into college when I was 17. Okay. On, tw- on 2014, and I graduated on 2019. Um, and I was 22. Mm-hmm. When I graduated, I began working for a nonprofit organization, for a, another nonprofit organization. <laughs> Two nonprofits. One was a freedom of speech, and the other one was about political rights and civic engagement. So afterwards, then a professor, after COVID hit on March, because we got March into lockdown. March twenty twenty. We got into lockdown oh, on March twenty twenty. I graduated in December two thousand nineteen. So it was, <laughs> it was like. I was just like not finding good jobs. I used to work, so I was a political leader and everything, like in the university student leader and everything, but I was working as an English teacher. Oh, okay. Yeah, for kids. <laughs> so I've been having a few lives. <laughs> so <laughs> Interesting transition. Yeah. <laughs> so I was working uh, doing that because that was like what gave me profits. Mm-hmm. And the other two jobs were not as profitable as I would well, as profitable as they should have. Mm-hmm. And then a professor calls me and tells me, Mirzava, I got a good friend who is looking for an assistant. And he works at the opposition. Well, we used to call it the interim presidency. Okay. Because uh, supposedly, um, <laughs> so there was a coup. I could say semicolons because among semicolons, like a coup d'état, like a coup d'état. It was a coup, but (laughs) but it didn't happen that way. It was just a parliamentary, um, yeah, change of government, but it wasn't enforced because the parliament was opposition, Uh was from the opposition, and the opposition named a new president. However, the division of power in Venezuela wasn't. Um, it wasn't enforced. I mean, the parliament was already persecuted by the government. Mm-hmm. So that president was an interim president under the opposition terms. However, he didn't have any control of, of anything, like whether the army or the or the oil or the resources. It was more about like an opposition movement that was trying to positionate an interim president. Okay. Based on their, based on the parliament that they were leading, hmm. 
which was the actual parliament. Like, they won those elections. However, um, since in Venezuela, the division of power and the power balance was already on scratches, then it wasn't, like, real, if we could say that. Okay. But it was still an opposition and pressure movement. And it was pretty serious back then. Like, when they began in 2019, it was pretty serious back then. So in 2020, this professor calls me, and two weeks pass, and this person calls me. He's like, hey, I heard you're really good at what you do. I want you in my team. This is what's going on. So I worked for that um, interim presidency in the president's uh, team. Oh. Um, and then, yeah, Juan Guaido was his name. Well, it's his name because he's still alive. He's living now in the United States. Um, so then this person who called me, he was like, hey, Miros, um, I need you to work right ahead, like right now. <laughs> so I began working for different projects. Um, and I was most likely supervising and reporting and evaluating that the project was going as the way it should have and that every leader that we had on the field was doing what they had to do, the mission that they had. Mm -hmm. But it was 2020, so the restrictions and the lockdown in Venezuela was pretty rough. When I'm talking about pretty rough is that we had more than nine months in lockdown. Oh, wow. Um, we used to need like a special permit to do groceries. It was pretty similar to to China in a in a smaller scale. Interesting. Yeah, but it was well. It is. It, they are besties, like China, Venezuela, the government. <laughs> they are besties, so definitely they they share practices. Yeah. Um. So afterwards, they just got cut us off from that project. And Who the, cut you off? Um, the the entire project just it was just cut off, and they okay. had issues with my actual boss. Oh. And my boss was like, "Miros, I want you to stay here because you're gonna learn a lot, and you're really good at what you do." And I used to help um, a congresswoman from that movement, mm. and she told him, "I want her in my team." <laughs> and I became the chief of of her team, of her wow. parliamentary team. And I was still working at the NGO with um, another um, project that was uh, tracking the situation in the public hospitals under a humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. Ugh. So and under COVID, huh. so we had a lot of information about like that there wasn't even like bleach or any kind of hygiene in those uh, health centers. Like they weren't sanitized. They weren't sanitized. Many people died. We had we even had the actual um, rates and data of how many deaths by COVID Oof. were. So definitely that's sensitive information. So I was mm -hmm. pretty exposed. Also having the information in the, um, in the opposition movement or the interim presidency and the Congress was pretty delicate as well. So I was already exposed. Yeah. Then I, a friend, a political scientist, calls me and asks me, what are you doing right now? And I was like, well, I'm just, you know, um, 
doing some work with NDO and this interim opposition movement, he tells me, like, I got a proposal for you. We're building a movement all across the country with the students, and they need assessment. <laughs> An assessment? Yeah, they need assessment, and they need someone to be their consultant with me, and I want you as my partner. Oh, wow. And I was like, yeah, you know, I love a strategy. Let's do it. <laughs> And then everything just turned pretty dark, like going through all those three different jobs. Yeah. I was truly exposed. And then some I was I, I was able to see some of the police officers and the military police going around my house. Um, going out at night wasn't safe for me because I had my laptop on me and if they checked my laptop and all the information I had there that was that wasn't going to turn out well. I could be in jail. And I, and I was by myself with my car during night. So my parents were pretty concerned. <laughs> I wasn't back then. But then when they, they, they started coming to like all around my apartment complex. And one of them got involved with my neighbor, oh. my downstairs neighbor. I knew that was something was going on. And so they were spying and they were like threatening me, but threatening me, but uh, quietly, if that makes sense. Whoa! So, so, I mean, are you by any chance still involved right now? I mean, even though you're here in the U.S., I mean, did you say goodbye to that world that you're involved in, or are you? Well, then comes the other part of the story. <laughs> okay. So afterwards, my congresswoman tells me, hey, we're having an international parliamentary tour towards South America and Central America. Yeah. Please settle everything. And I I made everything. I made, made all the planning, logistics, and everything. And I got into a plane uh, on August 3rd, 2022. Okay. 2022. No, 2021. Okay, 2021. three years ago. Three years ago, I got into a plane, but when I got to the airport, um, military police asks me, what do you do for a living? Oh and I was gosh. like, I'm an English teacher. And he was like, yeah, are you an English teacher? And an English teacher is going to travel to Dominican Republic and then to Costa Rica and then to Ecuador. <laughs> that doesn't seem like it. And I was like, yeah, I'm an English teacher. So that was pretty scary because I thought that they were going to just jail me up in the airport, but they didn't. Okay. So I flew to Dominican Republic and then flew to Costa Rica and met my congresswoman and we were there. We did lobby all across the parliaments of these countries and then we got to Colombia where I had family. Uh My closest family was there. And once my closest family, because nobody knew what I was doing, once they figured out what I was doing for a living, they told me, Miros, you cannot go. Like, you cannot return to Venezuela. You haven't seen it because you were there. And once you're there, you're like a horse in a race. You don't you don't look like all around you. <laughs> you don't look your surroundings, but you got you to gotta be safe. Yeah. So my aunt, my mother's uh, sister, offered me to stay there with her and her family. Uh, and she was, because they had already like two vacant um, rooms 
because my <laughs> yeah. cousins were already gone. And I, and I remained there with her, my uncle, and her daughter, like her daughter and his daughter, my cousin. Mm-hmm. I stayed there for three months, and I was like doing Venez- like things from Venezuela, finishing my uh, jobs in Venezuela with the NGO and everything. And then I was like, okay, what am I going to do here? <laughs> I'm not even legally in the country. Well, I was legally in the country because they have a temporary protection status for Venezuelans there, but I oh. wasn't enrolled in that. Yeah. Um, but I, was, I wasn't I was staying there for more, than, for more than 90 days back then. So I was like, what am I going to do? And then uh, I met someone who was uh, connected with the previous government of Colombia. And he was like, Miroslava, I'm looking for Venezuelan-Colombian candidates all across the country. For what? Candidates for <laughs> For the Senate and the Congress uh, oh, election my. in Colombia. And I was like, okay, I can recruit them. Because I was already doing social work, like leadership work over there, like civic engagement with uh, migrant population in Venezuela. Uh-huh. I wasn't working because it, it cannot be named work because it wasn't paid. Yeah. But it was like... Um, volunteer work? Yeah, maybe? volunteer work. So I was already like in the scene, if that makes sense. Mm. I was already on the scene. So then uh, I did that. And one of the candidates that I brought into the party, to the government party, was like, I, to- I told him when I was doing his form for filling out for candidate, mm-hmm. I was like, hey, you need a chief of campaign. And he was like, yeah, but I think that's you. <laughs> and I was like, no, you don't even know me. I mean, we have to barely talked. Like, we have talked for a month, but y- y- you need someone who you trust. Right. And he was like, I trust you because I trust your potential. I've seen you, so I know that we're going to make it. <laughs> so I got into that. <laughs> wow. I was his chief of campaign uh, of Simon. Simon Gamboa is his name. Mm-hmm. And we went all over Colombia we I like we were a team of four people only for a Senate campaign which is a lot but we were mostly two like him and I because we had only volunteers so they had their full-time jobs and we and they were my friends from Venezuela as well who who migrated to Colombia (laughs) so they were they were political scientists as well and they helped me a lot but we were like just the two of us of the, just the two of us. Wow. Then the campaign just um, was over because the election day came. He didn't win, and we knew that. We knew that this was a visibility campaign instead of, like, a winning campaign. Uh-huh. But afterwards, like, in the middle of the campaign, I remember someone from the embassy calls me. Hey, Mirislava. Do you remember you applied for the Fulbright scholarship? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Oh wow! And I was like, Oh yeah, of course. Like you, from the U.S. Embassy. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Yeah, of course. I've been in touch with you through mail. And they were like, Yeah, well, you're going to the United States in March. Oh my! <laughs> what? And I was like, What? What? Oh my! So God. since Venezuelans were allowed to stay in Colombia a longer time. Um, so I was legally in the country, but not enrolled into like the temporary protection status or anything. Mm-hmm. But I was legally there 
but then I was like, okay, I was thinking about enrolling because <laughs> I, I see the opportunities are coming up, but I'm leaving. And I left five days after the election. Five days after the election. Yeah. You went to the to Venezuela? No. To the, East, the United States? I went right straight from Colombia to the United States because I couldn't get back to Venezuela. Okay. Um, wow. And then... <laughs> Then they were like, okay, because I, I knew I was in the second place of the place of the of the scholarship, and they only had one scholarship. Oh, like you were waitlisted? I was in a waitlist. Yeah. Oh. I was the first person in waitlist. I don't know what <laughs> happened to the first person, and if and if that person is listening to me, thank you. <laughs> but but then they called me and they were like, yeah, you're going to Iowa. Wow. So that's pretty much my work story. If we could. Oh my gosh. Do a summary about it. <laughs> What a journey. What a what a story. What a what an experience. <laughs> this is this is incredible. No, seriously. And so so he stayed in Iowa and then now he spent a couple of months in Iowa and then he moved to NC State. I spent 9 months in Iowa. Not just a from couple. <laughs> March, from March until December of wow. 2022. Yeah, 2022. Wow. And then I was placing in the state. Mm. Um, most of my Fulbright uh, part, uh, classmates who were with me in Iowa, they left after two semesters, like spring semester and summer semester. Okay. They were placed back then, but I wasn't because I had a few issues with TOEFL as well. Uh-huh. But at the same time, I think it wasn't my time. Like, to be completely honest, because <laughs> I had issues with TOEFL when I'm talking about, like, my computer didn't run the proctor. Oh, like the test. Like yeah, the- like the test, like the system of the test. Uh-huh. So people who had taken TOEFL, which I believe is almost the entire population who can listen to this podcast. <laughs> people who had taken TOEFL knows that doing TOEFL at home is just pretty tough because, you know, the proctor, the system, they, they do a surveillance system for you. Mm-hmm. So your computer basically needs to be like, reset yeah so they yeah they so my i had like three failed tests because of the proctor system Ugh, that's that's terrible yeah and i took other two and my main problem uh was my reading Mm. my reading skills because i wasn't i wasn't aware that i needed glasses (laughs) oh (laughs) that's another issue there's where i figured that out (laughs) And I think that it wasn't my time. Like God, what God or whatever, everyone believes in. Or if mm-hmm. you don't believe in anything, that's totally fine. Destiny or science or whatever. <laughs> um, just wanted me to stay in Iowa, and I spent a really good time there. I met wonderful friends who I keep in touch with. I went to Thanksgiving with one of my roommates from Minnesota. I broke my uncle there. You you broke your what? My uncle. Your ankle. Oh yeah, my oh ankle. my. Ugh, sorry to hear that. Yeah, so I broke my ankle there, and I moved when I was when I had my ankle uh, broken, and many people helped me. I had a host, a wonderful host family, because we had a host family system in the in the University of Northern Iowa, yeah, where we used to meet every every week. So I experienced so many things, and I was involved with the Midwest culture. Yeah, Midwest. Yeah, and and it's and it's. And it was, I don't know, I believe that that was like a great first-hand experience. And then in December, 
Yeah. I called I called Uber like in November and I was like, hey, I know this is great to stay here. I would love to stay here in Northern Iowa, but there are no like programs for me or my interest. And in Iowa was where I figured out that I wanted to focus and dedicate my life to migration policy. Yeah. And uh, because, of course, all the experiences in Colombia, which was a country that had a lot of migration from Venezuela. Mm-hmm. A lot of Venezuelan migration was there. Like two, be- two million people live. Two million Venezuelans live in Venezuela. Oh, in Colombia back then. Now they are three point something. But um, then coming to the United States and seeing like the different issues about migration, not only Venezuelans, but also like all the, the problems across the Americas with the migration issue. So I was writing an essay after writing an essay of sustainable tourism for a class, for an English class. <laughs> and then I was like, what am I going to do with this essay that it's the final essay from my spring semester in the English pre-academic course? What am I going to do? And then I was like thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking. And I remember I had a flashback about my campaign, like the way I went, like the way I left Venezuela, the way the migrants were crossing the Darien to come to the United States. And then I was like, hey, this is my interest. And I began <laughs> writing about that, and I haven't stopped since then. Wow. And then I called my full advisor, and I was like, hey, I hope everything is fine, but I changed my interest, my research <laughs> interest. <laughs> so that was harder for them to place me as well. Oh, yeah. And then in November, I called them out. I was like, hey, I know this is great. I love living in Iowa, but I need to know where I'm going to do like my, my grad school. Mm-hmm. They were like, yeah, we, we are still like on the process. And I was like, okay, I'll be patient. And then December 1st, they were like, hey, you have two options, Old Dominion, Virginia, okay. and State. And then I called my dad. Because <laughs> this is my dad's lifetime dream. Like my dad always wanted to study in an American university. Yeah. So I called my dad and I was like, Daddy, I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I really like Old Dominion because it's nearby DC, but I don't know. And he was like, It's not nearby. It's like three hours away. Oh my. And I was <laughs> like, Yeah, you're right. And then he was like, Yeah, but you're going to make that choice. But you know, NC State University has this and they have the wolves and they have it. And, the, and my dad did my entire <laughs> research and I was like, Okay, I'm going to do my research by my own. It's just that Old Dominion has a lot of marketing. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, Okay, once I saw the investment in research that Old Dominion had versus NC State, I was like, okay, then I'm going to NC State. (laughs) And I chose NC State, and my dad was like, oh my God, thank God you did this. (laughs) You made this decision. And in that matter, uh, NC State for an American university system. Mm is proportionally the same type of university that my university in Venezuela was. Oh, so it wasn't much of a shock to you then. Um, Well, it was, but (laughs) (laughs) I mean, of course. But what I'm talking about, like the type of universities that are state-funded university, um, it's a state university that has its own rules as well. So it's like, it works pretty much, pretty similar, which a little bit similar. Right, wow, well, Congratulations. (laughs) Congratulations. <laughs> I'm I'm very happy that you you made that, you know, you made that decision. I'm sure it was the right decision and I'm glad we uh we had this conversation. Such mm-hmm. an interesting journey. You know, this is fascinating. 
it's incredible. Like you never know what um, what story this international student next to you might have to share. Uh, so, um, but yeah, I appreciate your time, Miroslava. Thank you so much for sharing this with me. Um, and uh, I hope that in the soon future we can have more conversations about this. Of course. And if any connecting the pack fellow wants to <laughs> talk about migration or integration or anything related to migration policy, I'm more than open to. That's a virgin field that it's going out there. Mm -hmm. But it's the current issue that we that I am tackling and I think that it's gonna be an agenda for the future. Hopefully, because if not <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and thank you so much for your time and making international students and their stories and backgrounds visible mm -hmm. in the state. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that.